0: The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Good morning, Springs Church. I want to welcome each and every one of you this morning in the powerful and beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Let's begin together in prayer. Lord, we give thanks for you. We give thanks for who you are, what you've done and continue to do. We praise your holy name and we lift you up as the king above all gods. We worship you this morning and we ask that you would speak to us through your scripture, that your Holy Spirit would illuminate these words, God, and ask for the gift of preaching. We give thanks for your grace, your justice, your righteousness, and peace. And it's in the powerful name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. I want you to imagine with me the next installment in the Rocky film franchise. What would this be like? Rocky 10, 11, 12, something? And we go to see Rocky 10, and it hits all the familiar beats of a Rocky movie, right? Everybody's famous, favorite Philadelphia boxer. And it hits all the regular beats. There's this evil boxer who kind of needs to be put in his place and be dethroned. But Rocky says, no, I'm not going to do it. I don't want to do it. And then Rocky goes through this kind of harrowing, life-altering, death-defying experience, either through a friend or family member or his own life, and he's changed. And so he decides, all right, fine, I'll, I'll get back in the ring. And so we watch the movie all the way up to Rocky, headed to the arena, and he walks in the ring, and the bell rings, and he kind of slowly saunters into the middle of the ring. And then Rocky throws the most sorry excuse, half-hearted excuse for a punch in the history of heavyweight boxing and we're all just kind of completely confused by that. Like I thought Rocky had changed. I thought he'd been through this harrowing experience and personal growth and he's come into the ring and he throws this half-hearted sorry excuse for a punch. We'd be pretty confused. But then imagine our confusion if that half-hearted, sorry excuse for a punch actually landed and Rocky's opponent just drops to the ground, totally knocked out, fight over, Rocky wins. We'd be very, very perplexed at this point. Because Rocky is a movie that takes itself seriously. Uh, say what you want about the later ones, at least the first one one Best Picture, it's You know, it's a movie that takes itself seriously. It wouldn't make sense in the world of Rocky. But in the world of Jonah, it makes complete sense. In the satirical, zany, screwball comedy of the book of Jonah... That makes perfect sense and that's exactly what happened. Really, this hypothetical plot of Rocky 10 is basically Jonah chapters one through three, right? There's this evil that Jonah needs to go confront and he says, no, I'm not gonna do it and he goes through this harrowing, death-defying, life-altering experience and then in chapter three, he steps into the ring So let's dive right in in verse one together. It says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Get up, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim to it the message I tell you. So Jonah set out and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. So chapter three begins basically exactly like chapter one. right? It begins with the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time, gives him another opportunity, and this time, Jonah obeys. Jonah, according to the word of the Lord, goes to Nineveh to fulfill his prophetic task. And I think we should say it's easy to rag on Jonah and kind of fun to rag on Jonah. He's a pretty easy target. But I think we should also give credit where it's due because, frankly, nobody in the 8th century wanted to go preach to the Assyrian Empire. Nobody in the 8th century wanted to go to the capital city of the Assyrian Empire, Nineveh, and preach because that was a bad empire. It was an empire of cruelty and injustice and violence and evil and sin and death. It was a bad, bad place, and really, Jonah, being an Israelite, is incredibly ironic going to preach to Assyria, because guess who eventually destroys and deports the northern kingdom of Israel? Assyria, right? And so the first readers of Jonah would have seen this irony, like, whoa, you're calling an Israelite to go to the empire that's actually going to destroy and deport them later on? Right? Assyria is this bad, bad place. And in fact, Jonah's not the only prophet to speak against it. Right? Nahum actually speaks against Assyria. And he says this he says, All who hear the news about you clap their hands at your fall, for who has not felt your endless cruelty? And Nahum says about Nineveh, he says, Woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. As one commentator said, an Israelite going to preach in Assyria, in Nineveh, in the 8th century BC, is a little bit like a Jew going to preach to Berlin in the 1930s. Short of a stupendous miracle, this is probably not going to work out well. But Jonah obeys this time. Jonah obeys, and in verse 3, it says, Now Nineveh was an exceedingly large city, a three days' walk across. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's walk. And he cried out, Forty days more, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So like everything in the book of Jonah, Nineveh is just comically, extraordinarily huge. A three days walk across the city of Nineveh is what it says. By ancient Near Eastern standards, that is unbelievably a sprawling metropolis, right? Because this is the greatest city and the greatest empire on earth. This is, it's like Mesopotamia's New York City, right? Nineveh. But comparatively to our cities today, even the big cities in the ancient Near East were relatively compact. Now, it's it's possible that the text by saying Nineveh is kind of referring to this greater Nineveh, these several cities around it, kind of in the way that Dallas proper is just, you know, a fifth of the size of the Dallas-Fort Worth metroplex. But regardless, Nineveh is described as just exceedingly comically large here. And Jonah gets in about a day's walk, and then in in contrast to how big Nineveh is, Jonah's sermon is entirely short, right? Jonah says, 40 days more, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's it. Eight words in English. Five words in the original Hebrew. Jonah goes into Nineveh finally obeying the call of God and delivers a five-word sermon. Ben and I have been just kind of laughing to ourselves leading up to this, knowing that one of us was going to have to get up and preach a half-hour sermon on a five-word sermon. (laughs) There's just no way I can whittle it down to Jonah's five-word sermon because Frankly, I care about this sermon, and it sort of seems like Jonah doesn't, right? Like Jonah's entire vocation, he's a prophet. What do prophets do? They speak. They speak on behalf of God. They're God's mouthpiece, Jonah has five words. If you look at the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, we're talking 52 chapters, 66 chapters, so many speeches, speech after speech after speech, very little narrative. Jonah, five words. Five words is all he can muster. And really, it's not even just the length of the sermon, but look at the content of it. Forty days more, and Nineveh, shall be overthrown. Put a little mental bookmark on that word overthrown, but what's really interesting here is not even what's in the sermon, Well, what's not there. First of all, there's no indication that Jonah is actually giving us the exact message that God wanted him to give. Right? There's no thus saith the Lord, which is kind of the regular prophetic formula. That's not there. And then there's no reasons for why this destruction is supposed to be coming. Jonah doesn't give any reasons. He doesn't say, hey, you're doing evil X, Y, and Z. And then he doesn't give any instructions for a response. He doesn't say, you're doing evil X, Y, Z. You need to start doing A, B, C. He says, 40 days more and you're toast. 40 days more and and you're going to be overthrown. It seems like the very last thing Jonah wants is for any change to happen. Right? It seems like the very last thing Jonah wants is for any repentance to really come about in Nineveh. And so, in keeping with the book of Jonah, what happens? Verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast, and everyone, great and small, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Then he had a proclamation made in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, no human being or animal, no herd or flock, shall taste anything. They shall not feed, nor shall they drink water. Human beings and animals shall be covered with sackcloth, and they shall cry mightily to God. All shall turn from their evil ways and from the violence that is in their hands. Who knows? God may relent and change his mind. He may turn from his fierce anger so that we do not perish. Jonah throws this... Half-hearted, sorry excuse for a punch. And Nineveh is completely overturned. Right? Nineveh is completely undone. Nobody cares less about converts than Jonah. And in five words, he's made Billy Graham look like a total hack. The entire city has, has turned upside down. The entire city in five words, and if you're not already laughing at this comedy of Jonah, you should be. Because first of all, Jonah is like the Looney Tunes of the prophets. Uh, like every move Jonah makes in one direction, it turns around and goes a mile in the opposite direction. He's like the wily coyote of prophets here. And then secondly, look at what's happening in Nineveh. Look at what's happening in Nineveh. Not just the humans from least to the greatest repenting, the cows are repenting. The animals are putting on sackcloth and repenting to God. Everything from top to bottom to animals have turned towards God because of Jonah's lame five-word sermon a sermon that really doesn't even mention God. But this city has gone from bloodshed and violence and injustice, and they've tried from top to bottom, from the king to the very least to the animals, to become an equitable society, to become a society that turns towards the face of God and away from their evil and destruction. And Jonah does this in five words, which really means to point us towards the person who's really acting in this text. Jonah's sorry excuse for a sermon and prophesying is really supposed to point us towards the one who really has agency in this text, and that is God. Jonah actually drops out of chapter 3 after his sermon. We don't see him again until next week in chapter 4. But here at the end of the chapter, as we turn towards God, we find in verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God changed his mind about the calamity that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. So Jonah brings this lazy message of destruction, and the entire city completely turns away from death and destruction, and they turn towards God. And then the text says that God changes his mind, that God relented or turned or repents, essentially. And so this is a good place for us to sit for a moment with an important question that the text kind of raises for us, which is, what does it mean for God to repent? What is the Bible trying to tell us about God by saying that God changes his mind or that God turns or changes or repents or relents? And this for some of us, our response is probably just, well, it means that God repents, right? It means what it says. It says what it means. It's as simple as that. No need for any fancy footwork here. But I think this actually brings up an important point, something about the way that Scripture speaks and even the way that we speak ourselves. And that point is this, that we can tell the truth through literal speech and through metaphor, all right? We can tell the truth through literal words and through figurative words, right? So in fact, we can even tell lies with literal speech and tell the truth through metaphor, right? If I say to John, if I say, oh, I'm so excited to get to your event on Friday, John, and then I turn over to Greg in the next second and say, I am dying to get out of that event on Friday. I've just told a lie with my literal speech, and with my metaphor about dying, I've told the truth to Greg. So we we can tell lies with literal speech. We can tell truth with metaphor. We can communicate the truth in all sorts of ways, right? And our ability to discern between the two is important because If Kelly comes up to me and says, I'm going to kill John, my ability to discern there is going to be the difference between saying, oh, no, what happened, or calling the cops. (laughs) Right? And so we speak this way. We communicate through literal speech or through metaphor. And Scripture speaks that way as well. Right, as Rebecca McLaughlin points out, you know, Jesus, when he says, I'm the good shepherd, he's not claiming to be a farmer. If he says, I'm the true vine, he's not claiming planthood. Right? Jesus is speaking in figurative language. He's using a metaphor to talk about himself, to describe himself and what he's like. And so Jesus In fact, is often misunderstood egregiously and hilariously through the Gospels when people fail to distinguish between his literal speech and his metaphorical speech. So, what does this mean for Jonah 3? All right, because when we look at the Old Testament, you know, Deuteronomy talks about God liberating his people with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. So, is this telling us that God has a physical hand or a physical limb or appendage like us in the same way? Well, probably not. You know, Jesus says that God is spirit. So perhaps what mighty hand and outstretched arm is telling us about God is that he has the qualities and the capabilities of someone with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. He's able to make, to create, to liberate, to do, right? So when Jonah 3.10 tells us that God changes his mind or God repents, what are we hearing from Scripture? What's it trying to say to us? Because there are a lot of Bible passages that speak about God in ways that make it look like he's changing or he's repenting. And really, there are a lot of passages that speak about God as if he's unchanging, doesn't change or falter or repent, right? In fact, to just spend a quick moment in 1 Samuel 15, we get both of these ideas, right? In 1 Samuel 15, God says this. He says, I regret that I have made Saul king because of Saul's disobedience. And then 18 verses later, Samuel says this. Samuel says, the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. All right, the NRSV says the glory of Israel will not recant or change his mind. So, Scripture is aware of this tension, right? Scripture is aware of our finite human language trying to speak about an infinite, perfect God. And when we look at Jonah 3 on the surface, it sort of looks like God has been surprised by the Ninevites' actions and quickly changes and responds in kind. But I think if we look at the book of Jonah as a whole, we can see a higher prior providential purpose at work. Look closely at Jonah's sermon verse 4. He cried out, 40 days more, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Every word counts in a five-word sermon, especially the last one. And that last word that Jonah's used, overthrown, that's used a lot in Scripture to talk about judgment and wrath, right? Sodom and Gomorrah are overthrown, overturned. But That word can also be, in Hebrew, kind of a pun, It can actually mean not just overthrown, but to be turned over, to be turned around, or actually to be transformed, to be changed for the better. Psalm 30, actually, verses 10 and 11 says, Hear, O Lord, and be gracious to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned my mourning into dancing. You've taken off my sackcloth and clothed me with joy. And so judging by how the story of Nineveh plays out, what seems to be the case is that where Jonah meant overturned, destroyed, God meant overturned, transformed. That where Jonah, who did not want Nineveh to repent, brought a word of overturned destruction, God subverts with this beautiful divine irony in that God always intended to overturn and transform. Right? It is as if that there is in this word that God always intended this kind of stowaway salvation. Just as Jonah in chapter one is in the heart of the ship, and he's the cause of the storm. He brings this destruction upon them. But at the same time, Jonah is the pathway for those sailors to the one true living God. Jonah, who comes as a moment and a symbol of destruction, is really this kind of stowaway salvation. In the same way that that hard, awful wood a symbol of death and destruction and shame and humiliation, if there ever was one, is overturned with Jesus upon it to become a symbol of God's life and salvation for the world. That in Jesus Christ, there is this stowaway salvation, that the death and ugliness and sin of the cross becomes for God's people a chance to turn, to repent, to believe, to be saved. And that's why when we talk about God changing or repenting, as one commentator says, we could talk about God's repentance by saying that Jesus is the eternal repentance of God. Jesus is God's eternal desire to love even the wicked. God's eternal desire, not a change, but a fulfillment of his intention to redeem, to bless all nations through Abraham, through Israel, through Christ the Messiah. And God's not surprised by it, but we sure are. We sure are surprised by this stowaway salvation. And that word of judgment and threat is not to be taken lightly. That word judgment and threat is very real, right? And that's the reason that the Ninevites respond and change because they take God's word of judgment and threat seriously. But then God reveals through Jonah through Jesus, his propensity to love those even least like himself. That's the message we find in the repentance of God in Jesus Christ, that stowaway salvation waiting for us if we would only turn and that our destruction would be overturned to become transformation. Transformation. That's what God calls us to preach, to proclaim, and to live out. Let's begin by standing and praising the God of our salvation this morning.